Jeannie Etzel is showing us a picture of her children. They're all uniquely unique. I mean, <laughs> yes. you know, we uh, call ourselves the International House of Pancakes because we're very ethnically diverse, too. <laughs> we'll start at this end. David is Caucasian and Arabic. His father was from Saudi Arabia. That's Jeannie Etzel, uh, describing her family to me and my producer, Carrie Thompson. We're on our way to meet her and her husband, Burgess, at their house to find out more about their lives, their plans for their retirement, and their big, oh-so-complicated family. In 1,000 feet, turn left onto Windrush Drive. Where are we going, Ken? We're going to see Jeannie and Burgess. That's all. We're about 30 miles north of Houston, driving through a neighborhood of massive homes, five 6,000-square-foot homes. Your destination is on the left. Hi, Burgess. Jeannie and Burgess invite us in and introduce us to their dogs. And then Skittles, the wiener dog back there. Jeannie and Burgess have both worked at Harris Health, the public health system in Houston, for most of their careers. In fact, they're just a handful of years away from retirement. Soon, they'll both qualify for full pensions, the kind of benefit plans many of us only dream about. From the outside, it would appear that Jeannie and Burgess have it made. They live in a prosperous subdivision on a safe glide path towards retirement. Both of them are that increasingly rare species of retirees, those who will receive defined benefit pensions. Each will receive a guaranteed flow of income for the rest of their lives. These types of pensions used to be par for the course in the United States, but employers began to phase them out years ago, shifting the risk of longer life to workers. Now, only 13.5% of working age people in the U.S. have pensions, and that number is still on the decline. Having not one, but two people with these types of pensions seems like the golden ticket of retirement. I'm 21 months away from having my full pension, which a lot of people don't have, so it's very yeah. precious that I don't leave even $20 on the table. Why shouldn't Jeannie leave even 20 on the table? As we talk to the Etzels, it becomes clear that their story is not what it seems. If it weren't for that, I wouldn't have anything. I don't have six months of savings to pay bills. I don't even have two months where saved up it as it comes. Um, it's all right here from these kids, and I wouldn't have it any other way. This isn't a story about how Jeannie and Burgess have it better than you or I. In fact, it's the opposite. It's a story of precarity, how so many Americans, after decades of work and service, are looking down the barrel of retirement with little savings and very uncertain futures. This is the story of what the new retirement means for too many people. From the Stanford Center on Longevity, this is Century Lives, The Retirement Ladder. I'm Ken Stern. Support for this podcast comes from Corbridge Financial, making it possible for more people to take action in their financial lives for today and tomorrow. Learn more at CorbridgeFinancial.com. And speaking of taking action, Helping people take more control over their money is why Gene Chatsky started the Her Money Podcast. From understanding your money personality to taking steps to earn more, spend wisely, invest for tomorrow, and protect it all, the Her Money Podcast can help you get there. Subscribe to Her Money with Gene Chatsky wherever you get your podcasts. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's flip the calendar back a day when we first met the Edsels. We were at uh, Lyndon Johnson Hospital 
Houston, Texas. Okay. And we're walking to the outpatient clinic. And by the way, Linda Johnson Hospital is huge. It's actually the smaller of the two uh, Harris County Health Hospitals, but it's enormous. Yeah, it does look big. I don't really know where it starts and where it ends. Yeah. Oh, Good right. Hi, hi. Hello. We're looking for Jeannie Etzel. Both Jeannie and Burgess work at LBJ. They met here, fell in love here, and will soon be retiring from here. Jeannie is the head nurse at the outpatient clinic and it teams with activity, as you might expect in a place where at peak hours, patients stack up like traffic during Houston rush hour. So Jeannie, can you just tell us where we are here and sort of orient ourselves to this place and what it does? This is the outpatient center at LBJ Hospital. Um, Right now, we're approaching what's the same day urgent care clinic, which um, gives a lot of patients an alternative place because a lot of entry into our hospital, primary entry for patients that aren't familiar with the system is through the ER because they don't know any other way. So they may present over there with, I have a urinary tract infection or I have a small laceration where they may get a gunshot wound or a heart attack and these people are waiting 12, 15, 24 hours because, yeah, they're sick, they don't feel well, but they don't have any other options. So we're an option. Jeannie is proud of their service to the community and how they help people across Harris County. There's been an evolution and mindset with Harris Health that they just, the past was, it's indigent care, they don't care about you, they're there because they have to be, but that's not the case anymore. We need our patients, our patients need us. Without our patients, we don't have a job. Without our patients, we don't have um, the satisfaction of our livelihood, of our passions. So we're not substandard, but everybody has that impression. And it's evolved a lot in 28 years. We walk down a well-lit corridor, making our way to the inner sanctum of the outpatient clinic. You're blessed today because we're fully staffed. So okay. I'm at the float nurse this morning, so I have a little flexibility. So, so tell us a little bit about your story, about uh, how, you, how you got into the profession and how you got here. Um, typical little girl story. It's really not that typical. Um, always <laughs> wanted to be a nurse. Long story short, I'm very open. 15-year-old mom, teenage mom, my first child. Um, so therefore, dropped out of school, all this stuff, and I just wanted to do more. I just, you know, I knew that wasn't the path for me. So um, once I got brave enough that I was good enough or worthy enough, I went to the community college and said, I want to be an accountant. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a nurse. I know it doesn't sound like a nurse, but so, once I got in there. I want to be an accountant. And how, how did you find it? Yeah, what, what happened? Well, I mean, it was always in the back of my brain that I wanted to be a nurse. And, and I'm looking at the plan, and it's like, if I'm going to spend this much time and effort, I might as well do what I want to do. And had you gotten it? So, so had you gotten a high school degree by then? No, so you, I had a GED. Oh, you did? Okay. I dropped out in the eighth grade. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's one of my church stories when we have a convention is they had to guess which sign fit with the person and my sign was you know i got two college degrees and i've never been to high school oh my god so they had to figure out who you, it was <laughs> did anyone guess it right no <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't get it right either um no. wow so you missed the entire high school experience how do you feel about that, that i feel very sad yeah. and i really 
having, I have, I still have two 16 year olds home, so they're juniors. So I'm really encouraging them to live that experience. Of course, partially for me, you know, but I don't want them to miss out. I mean, you know, one of my 16 year olds says, well, you never even graduated high school. She'll pull that card on me every <laughs> once in a while. I said, I just want you to do it the easier way. I said, you want to pull the hard card, you can, but, um, so she'll do that sometimes. But yeah, so, yeah, I just went at 25, 24, 25, I started school, had a 10-year-old and, no, 12-year-old and a 3-year-old that we had adopted with a little girl when she was born, and I cleaned toilets, I cleaned houses, I worked in the lab, I helped my friend in her home daycare, I did whatever, everything that was flexible, and I got my associate's degree, and I came to Harris Health. May of 95 is when I graduated, and I've been here ever since. Wow. I started wow. off as a graduate nurse in the ER. And have you always been here at Lyndon Johnson? Yes. All right, so 28 years. Wow. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, 21 awesome. months to retirement so if I choose. 21 months, all right. Cool. Who's counting? Right? Uh, nobody. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Jeannie introduces us to her coworkers and shows us around. Um, these are our nurses. Uh, this is our nurse's station. This is Annette. She's one of our LVNs. Uh, Dr. Lamb. She's one of our family practitioners. And this is your station um, right here? I'm sitting in the second chair. Normally, I'm the lead when Chantel's not here. I let Chantel have charge because I'm tired. I've done that. Are you the most uh, senior nurse here? Experienced yeah. nurse? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you say so. that without sort of, sort of kind of retired way. <laughs> yeah. No, it is. I mean, it's a it's a heavy um, responsibility because I feel like, and you know, we all bring different things to the table. You know, I may be oldest or oldest here or whatever, but I think a lot of times I pull from them just as much. But I'm a resource, yeah. Especially I told Chantel when I begged her to take the charge nurse. I'll be here. You can call me. This is Chantel. She's one of our 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 Hi, in Chantel. charge. <laughs> And I'll, I'll whisper to her, you really shouldn't do that. I don't think that's a good idea. And she can listen or not listen, but you know. <laughs> do you usually listen? I do. Okay. She's the mother. She's the mother of Same Day Clinic. Yes. You say you talk about all sorts of things with your coworkers. You guys talk about retirement. Oh, uh, yeah, we do. Because <laughs> we're all ready, you know, depending on the day. You know, everybody's looking forward to that. Um, I think, you know, it comes up with me and another nurse, mostly because we're the oldest um, and getting closer. What's the hard thing? I mean, you, you, this is, a, for three decades, this has been one of your central purposes, yeah, right? Yeah, people. And I mean, yeah. yeah. And, and what you do really matters to them. So yeah. um, you, do you worry about sort of losing that? I do, yeah. I mean, um, I've had patients that keep me up at night. I've had patients that I've dreamed about. You know, and that, that gets stressful, and I just kind of let some of my battles go and pass them to the younger ones. I'm too close to retirement to jeopardize my job. Her husband Burgess works one building over, and he too is nearing retirement. Does he have his 30 years in now? No, he's got like another year behind me, I think. One or two years behind me, so yeah, we're close. I mean, you know, we're, we're running neck and neck. Did you guys meet here? Yes, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I was the f new divorcee nurse, as they say, just like on, you know, Grey's Anatomy. Ooh, there's a newly <laughs> divorced nurse up here. So I just said, you know, maybe I just need to try something a little different, you know? 
and he is different. He's very quiet. And if anyone had said, what do you think about this guy? I said, he's really peculiar. <laughs> and you, yeah, with the little squinch in your eye, Ooh, I don't know. But um, I secretively started emailing him back and forth from other emails, you know, beat your mountains, boxers or briefs, you know, what do you, you know, and he finally accidentally used my daughter's email one time and he recognized the last name and then the, the gig was up. So, yeah. And how long have you guys been married now? It's 17 years. I think it'll be 18 November. Right. He knows better than me. <laughs> I hate we'll to say. We'll I know. Jeannie helps us navigate the labyrinth of LBJ to meet Burgess, past filled waiting rooms and mysterious hallways. Now, this is where I get to see where his office is. You haven't seen it yet. I haven't. Huh. Let's see if he's got a picture of me in there. <laughs> we end up in a vast, echoey workspace okay. with a very different vibe. Hey, where's Burgess's office? Over here in the maintenance shop? Yeah, if you okay. uh, right through that door, to the door. Okay, what do you think of the office? Um, looks like his dresser and his corner in the bedroom yeah. and the garage. I'm organized, but I know where everything is. Yeah, whatever. I do. <laughs> I'm sure. And where are we now? Uh, we are in the, uh, what we call the maintenance shop in engineering. All right, let's get to the good stuff. Tell us how you met your wife. How I met my wife. Uh... Well, and we tell us the truth, unlike what she obviously uh, told yeah, us. Yeah, I'd love to know what, she's <laughs> going, what she told you. She, at that time, she was an assistant nurse manager. She was actually chasing one of my working buddies. And I knew he wasn't going anywhere with it, so I asked him if he minded if I chased her, and he said no. So I did. And I chased her till she caught me. Burgess, like many others we met, is originally from Houston. Uh, born and bred, uh, family has property in Fayette County, which is about 100 miles northeast on the way to Austin. Spent a lot of time growing up there. So uh, tell us how you ended up here. What's uh, sort of your career path? Well, I, I don't tolerate heat, uh, heat well. So about 28 years ago... Uh, then you're in the wrong place. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, about 28 years ago, uh, it was going on summer. And I just saw an ad in the paper when you still looked in the newspaper for job postings. It said they were looking for a carpenter. And I applied on a Monday, and by Thursday, I was off, no, by Wednesday, I was offered the job. Um, so, so you're going to be a carpenter at a hospital. What does a carpenter at a hospital do? At that time, we had a full cabinet shop. We built all the furniture, all the cabinets. Uh, Nothing was bought from the outside. We built everything else in the building. And, and, and how's that changed over the years? So we don't do that in-house anymore. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's all contracted out, or uh, furniture is all bought now through whichever company has the contract. So uh, did the change the job, uh, was that frustrating for you, or is it, uh, did you enjoy the job less after, as it changed? Yes. Yeah. I enjoy it less, yes. I like working with wood. So why'd you stay then, um, if uh, the job changed? I was locked into my pension. Yeah. I mean, uh, once, once we got locked in, it, it, uh, it didn't seem worth going anywhere because of my pension. Because at that time, the longer I'm here, uh, the higher it is. If you're wondering why Burgess stayed in his unfulfilling job, why both Jeannie and Burgess are carefully counting the math of retirement, 
The answer lies with the pictures on the wall of their house, back with their own international house of pancakes. Here are the lovely pictures of your family. Can you tell us who they all are? Who they all are? Well, of course, me and Burgess. And then uh, from oldest, this is Philip and his puppy Sadie that passed away. He is my biological son from a previous marriage. Jeannie describes herself as a package deal. When she married Burgess, she came with three children, one biological and two adopted, from two previous marriages. When Jeannie and Burgess were married nearly 17 years ago, they hadn't ruled out adopting together. They started out by considering becoming foster parents, and then they heard about Dottie, a baby who was born while her mother was in jail. <laughs> it was supposed to be for three days, and it's almost 17 years. Her mom basically was in jail and delivered, and the social work knew we were licensed foster home because we were doing foster to adopt. So, so uh, she was born while her mother was in jail. Yes. And how did how did it come to you? Um, um, they were because she had to go back to jail. She had about a month left on her sentence. Uh, they were trying to find family to take her and couldn't find family that was willing. They found grandparents and parents, but they all said they were too old. And and there had been a lot of you know they were homeless, drug addicted, and you know. She, she was basically prostituting to support their habit. Oh, so so you so it was very much a transitional thing in your yes. mind. Yes, right, right, yeah, yeah. And uh, sixteen years later, it's obviously yeah. not. So what happened? I mean, uh, um, when uh, when mom got out of jail, I mean, it was kind of in the interim discovered that they had had another child that was born far much worse off and never left the hospital five months from drug addiction and stuff and they weren't allowed to visit them because they were still very much caught up in that drug addicted world. Are the, the biological parents in in her life at all? Or yes. They are? Yes. Uh, it evolved in the beginning. It was like we'd meet downtown in Discovery Green, the big park downtown, and they would, or mostly mom would spend like 30 minutes and be gone because they were still kind of transitional in their, you know, in their life. They are the most gracious, thankful people you will ever meet. I, I promise you that once they were able to get out of that world. They are so grateful. Thank you for sort of walking <laughs> us through that story. Uh, uh, but the McKenzie. McKenzie. The we young, got the McKenzie youngest. when she was five months old. Dottie was born February 14th on my birthday. McKenzie is another adopted daughter, the same age as Dottie. So Mackenzie came through the CPS system and... They called us and said, we have this baby girl. And when they called and told us about her, I was like, okay. And I was literally at work. And I said, well, what hospital is she at, LBJ? I was like, oh, my God, she's upstairs. And he that was his main floor at the time and probably walked by here every day of five months. Well, <laughs> you know, they knock on the door. We go up. Her file is like this large, and she was still on oxygen. She was flap, floppy. She had no muscle tone at five months. We had to use sandbags and stuff like that. She had a, G, a feeding tube, sorry, for 12 years. Uh, oxygen, monitors, all that, but... Um, so, so A feeding tube for 12 years? Yeah. Yeah, for 12 years because she had really weak muscles. So when she was... They tried to bottle feed her, get her up to that point, but she would swallow twice and it'd go straight into her lungs. So she would get at what they call aspiration pneumonia. So let me ask both of you this. Uh, so you, you uh, had said to yourself, we don't want another special needs kid. And here's, here, I mean. Uh, we had three. You know, uh, we had three. Because yeah. I mean, so but what, made, what made you say, 
Um, well, at the time, McKenzie was our second known special needs because we didn't realize Dottie was special needs until she was well, about five, six. Yeah, really. So, so we didn't know. We just, you know, Mackenzie, oh, well, you know. Uh, once I held her in my arms, there was no going back. So I mean, I'm a nurse. And if, you know, God knocks on the door and says, you know, hey, you know, presenting this. And I'm like, okay, she's got this. She, all stuff I could handle, you know. And, and it's like looking at a puppy. How can you look at this child and think, I'm, ca- I'm trained and capable? We knew that's why they called us. <laughs> Because he told me I was holding her in the nursery, and he was, you know, we talking not until I, you said if you put her in my arms, then she goes home. And yeah, and then yeah, I said here, <laughs> and dropped her in his arms. So, Jeannie explains that as time has gone on, they've discovered that Mackenzie has a vast range of medical conditions, ranging from a mitochondrial disorder to obstructive pulmonary disease, and also has to grapple with mental health issues that sometimes keep her out of school. Add to that the special needs that Dottie has developed, and you have a fraught financial and emotional situation. Like most Americans, Jeannie and Burgess have poured all their resources into keeping their heads above water, buying what they describe to us as the most run-down house in a pricey neighborhood so that their kids can go to good schools, schools wealthy enough to offer the range of services supportive of two special needs children, and spending what they need on health care and care for their children themselves. More than half of all Americans don't have three months' worth of savings to cover emergencies or job loss, and the Etzels are no different. My 16-year-old Dottie, she was sitting with me like a month and a half ago. She goes, what you doing? I said, I'm paying bills. And she, she's starting to learn and pay attention to those things, a good steward of, of the grocery bill, except if it's something she has and it's always justifiable. But um, I said, well, I'm trying to figure out which ones I'm going to pay this week. And I said, I got this little pile that might be like the little Macy's credit card and whatever. And then I got this one, which is the gas bill and the light bill and whatever. I said, I'm going to pay the utilities first to make sure we have a roof over our house and whatever. Is it that dire? No. You know, they may get a late fee out of me or something like that, but I still have to make those decisions. I've jokingly told my children, just make sure you get me the good dog food. I want the Alpo. (laughs) Although Alpo's not the good dog food anymore. You know, I, we don't require much, but, um, you know, I'm good with that. <laughs> so actually, as you, um, uh, we've been asking this question, uh, which I never thought I'd ask. Um, uh, people have their vision boards of what their future looks like. What does it look like for you all in, let me give you a number, 15 years? Just comfortable. I mean, uh, we're, not in, we're not big traveling people. Uh, mainly because, you know, we got the girls not, you know, within a year of being married. And I look uh, at this as my investment in life. Yes. My family, my children. Jeannie gestures toward the photos on the wall. This is our future, our, our, our giving back to society, our giving back to humanity. Not because we felt like there was a need. They needed us, but... God knows we needed them just as much. So this is our investment in, yeah, a little bit our future. I don't know how tangible it will be, but it will. It would have made my life so much meaningful and rich. I know that the oldest two, the oldest boy, our oldest boy and oldest girl, and yes, I consider the oldest three mine. They will always make sure Mama's okay. 
uh, and taken care of, which is fine with me. I'm comfortable with that. I mean, what I've told my children when I say they're my future or my retirement future or however you want to look at it is I am very, I am very clear with my children that if need be, I'll come live with you or live in your backyard or, you know, you can take care of me. But the moment I interrupt your family flow, you're going to a soccer game, you know, having to take off work to take care of mom, I'm in a nursing home. I do not want to impede on their life, that normal flow. And I'm okay with that. They all know. They, they pretty much know. Um, just come visit me once a month and make sure they're not beating me. But um, I do not want to interrupt that, that just that joy you get with your kids and them growing up and the hardship at the time that it feels like, oh, I can't do this another day. But if you had mom to take care of in there, oh, no, that would break my heart. That would not make my retirement good at all. So can, can I ask you a little bit about the math of running out of money? Because about the um, are, you, are you promised as part of your pension sort of money until you die? Yes. Or until they go bankrupt. Uh, yes. Know. We are promised money until we die if that's the one of four or five choices we get four or five choices on how we want to collect our retirement but we are promised something oh, no. <laughs> we are promised something money until we die uh as long as the pension is still there of course they have gone back on some of the promises they have made employees over the years about, oh, come to work for us. You know you get paid less, but we have these benefits. And we have a retirement plan with medical that will always be there. And they took the medical away. That is the biggest factor as to why we probably won't be able to retire when we would like to or, you know, the way we live, be able to potentially, at least for a few years. Can, can I ask this question? So I asked you the, the good, I asked you sort of what's, what your biggest fear is, and I'll ask you your biggest hope uh, in a second. But are you more afraid of running out of money or dying? Running out of money? Yeah, we're running out of money. I should say dying because I'm the one that's probably not going to live to be 100. It'll be him. I have quite a few uh, underlying medical issues that, you know, kind of keep me... I've had open heart surgery already. I had a quadruple bypass in 2016, so seven years ago. I have a pretty scar. Yeah, her dad said she came with no warranty because <laughs> she had medical issues when I met her. I actually proposed to her when she was in laying in a hospital. hospital bed. <laughs> um, I'm in remission with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, so, you know, I've been through that first round, which we caught it very early, but it never is gone. I have 14 prescriptions. I mean... Who's going to pay those? <laughs> you know, right now it's manageable because I have co-pays, not full pay. And once you get Medicare, you're not eligible for pharmaceutical assistance. You don't get no help because you have government insurance. So you lose all those little benefits because I use that now for a couple of them to cover because my co-pay is $600 for one of them. $600 a year? A month. A month? Oh, my God. Yeah, a month. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I have a pension, but it's not yeah. going to cover all that because now we don't have medical. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I'm still going to be better off than some. Okay. So, so I'm sorry. I have to um, <laughs> uh, rewind a bit. Uh, you proposed to her when she was lying in the hospital bed. Uh, tell us why you chose that moment and what it was like. I don't know. It just came out. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't planned. 
Wasn't planned, no. Well, I was planning on it, but I didn't plan on doing it then. It just popped out. And I told him he was crazy, that he really needed to reconsider. You really don't want this and her packages, her children, you know, because it's a package. You know, it's a lot. And it was a lot. It prepped me for Dottie. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it did. So. Everything happens for a reason. All right. So, so uh Biggest fear, uh, what's the biggest hope? What's the, the best, what's biggest the best hope? case scenario for you? Biggest hope is that all the children do leave, but leave for the right reasons and are comfortable themselves. Can, can support themselves. Yes. You know, I've always told anybody and everybody, you don't have to have a million dollar house. You can live in a trailer by the river and be happy and successful and beneficial. You know, it, we, it's different for everybody as long as you can, you know, make your way and, you know, fi- you know, meet your personal needs and hopes and dreams. It's fine. Well, that looks different for everybody. Everybody would like the million-dollar dream, but um, I would like to be able to see my grandchildren. They made me wait a long time for grandchildren. I have three now. Just to be able to, you know, to see that that next generation and to see them grow up a little bit. It'd be awesome to see a great grandkid, but I'm not holding my breath, you know. I am, I want to say a pessimist. I, I prepare the minimal, and if I get more than that, it's awesome. It's gravy. Everyone always asks, are you done? Because we adopt about every eight or ten years, and when the girls turn ten, Junie, it's about that time. I said, nope, I'm done. But it turns out Jeannie and Burgess may not be done. Dottie and her 13-year-old sister may soon lose both their birth parents to disease. And if that's the case, Dottie's sister will probably become the newest member of the Etzel family. So we're probably going to gain a daughter Oh. in the next year or two. A daughter? Her sister. sister. We've all had talked about that. I would never turn down the, her sister. Yeah. I mean, but do I want a 13-year-old? <laughs> <laughs> oh. But... Yeah, that's facing us really soon, too. It's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. It's kind of an understatement for the complicated challenges that the Etzels face as they head into retirement. And even though they've planned meticulously and visualized how they want to live, they have a complicated situation with many unknown liabilities for health care and family support. But the Etzels are only an outsized example of the true state of the new retirement. Two-thirds of retirees report having to support adult children at some point, and American seniors have collectively withdrawn an estimated $22 billion to pay for their own health care costs. And still, 7.5 million seniors report that they've been unable to pay for prescriptions written for them by their doctors. Because of this, many seniors teeter on the edge of financial precarity, but hopefully a better fate awaits Jeannie and Burgess and their entire international house of pancakes. You know, no, I don't want to, you know, eat the dog food I jokingly refer to or whatever, but I, you know, we're honestly very simple. I told him he got very lucky except for, you know, a package with three kids already. Um, I'm not into purses, I'm not into jewelry, and I'm not into shoes. So, he won. The producers of Century Lives are Carrie Thompson, Aaron Bump, and Camilo Garzon. Music for this episode was provided by Audio Jungle and Ramteen Arablui. Support for this podcast comes from Corbridge Financial, making it possible for more people to take action in their financial lives for today and tomorrow. 
Learn more at CorbridgeFinancial.com. Century Lives is a production of the Stanford Center on Longevity, where our mission is to support ideas and research so that century-long lives are healthy and rewarding ones. You can find out more about us at longevity.stanford.edu. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Stern.